from the cowardice that dares not face new truth, from the laziness that is contented with half-truth, from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth. Good Lord, deliver us. Amen. In 1968, Otis Redding put out a song that I know many of you know. It's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. The words to the song are very catchy and very sing-song-ish, and I will not sing them. I will spare you that. But just to remind you, the words, the lyrics go, sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting when the evening comes, watching the ships roll in, then I watch them roll away again. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Redding even included sounds of actual waves and whistling in the recording. And as many of you know, three days following the recording of Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Redding died tragically in a plane crash. And I was thinking of this song because I feel like it captures in its lyrics and its quality a kind of peace. Sort of a superficial piece, but certainly a piece. This sense of just sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the ships, just wasting time. But there are moments in time where peace like that it comes to an end. Where the plane crashes, the hurricane hits, the tree falls, the phone call comes, the baby wakes up, and peace ends. And that's where we have to make a shift as a people of faith from a place of peace to a place of faith. And that's a pretty hard shift to make. That's even a hard shift to articulate. We talked at staff meeting last Tuesday about how we loved the responses that the congregation gave to the question of where do you find peace and how they lended themselves so well to such a beautiful slideshow and testimony of what peace is. While we really like the one faith that you're going to see in a few minutes of the offering as well, it's notably different. Because it's harder to articulate what faith is. It's harder to capture it, to imagine it, to put it into words. One might even make the case that faith itself is harder to find. That faith is seen by many both then, when this letter was written, and today as something that's fundamentally optional. That one can go about one's life and one's job and one's meal planning and one's work responsibilities and one's car maintenance and anything and everything that has to happen in life and have no faith in God whatsoever. And I think Paul understood how fragile the idea of faith is. And the letter we hear today is written from Paul, or perhaps it's written by a ghostwriter, someone very similar to Paul and Paul's thought. But it bears a lot of weight because it was written from prison. And by the time the letter was received by Timothy and the community there that received it, Paul had died, so he had been martyred. So these words that are coming come with the weight of a dying leader. And in these words we hear today, we hear a very clear and certain message that 
this Paul very much wants this young Timothy and the community that young Timothy is working in to keep the faith, to hold to their faith, that faith is not automatic, that faith is challenged, that faith is full of doubts. There's many obstacles for it, but if Paul could convey anything in those last words is the importance, the vital importance of young Timothy keeping that faith. And today we have the privilege of being able to listen in on Paul's words to young Timothy, words that were not just from him to Timothy, but are from God to us today. Words calling us to imagine the importance of faith, to claim its importance in our world and in our day, to look at it again and again. Words that are intended to help us this morning in October in 2016. And as we hear these words in these letters, this appeal to keep the faith, a few themes emerge. First of all, there is this insistence or reminder that young Timothy remember that he didn't just pop out of nowhere. He came from a series of faithful people. It names Eunice and Lois and women of the faith who had been very faithful and dedicated in their practice and their thoughts. And Paul's reminding young Timothy of that. And I have to say, I mean, it's not always the case, but typically young boys, they love their mamas. And they love their grandmamas even more. And so maybe it's a little bit, you know, emotionally manipulative of Paul to go there, but he does. He says, think on your mamas and your grandmamas. Think on those women who have formed you. Those women who have had a faith. Those women whose greatest wish is that you have it as well. And I understand Paul and why he does this. I understand it personally. I understand it because a great, one of the reasons that I am in ministry this day is because of my own great-grandmother, who was an example to me in the faith. A woman who I admired for a number of reasons, a woman who had not just a phenomenal faith, but a great sense of humor and was always tricking us. She would take her false teeth, her dentures out, and she'd turn them upside down, she'd stick them right back in, and then chase us around the house. Talk about terrifying. I mean, she was old, so she was slow, but it was still really scary. But I also just love the way that she took an interest in her children and her grandchildren. And as a young girl, I remember visiting her house. She also lived far away, and so it was a rare opportunity when we got to visit her house. I remember visiting her house, and for whatever reason, all the family was gone that afternoon. It was just me, home alone with my great-grandmother. And she invited me to come and sit beside her on the couch. And I have to say I was a little nervous, you know, the whole tooth thing, you know. But I did. And she was really serious. And she told me about how much she loved the Lord. This wasn't a big surprise. I knew she talked to the Lord all the time, in, day in, day out. She even, they had a minor stroke and they were wheeling her out and she told the EMS workers, no need to hurry, I talked to the Lord, this is not my time. She was right, it wasn't. But I mean, that's like the, the way she was. I just have really never known anyone who's just walked with the Lord so daily, hourly, minute by minute. And so she sits there on the couch and she tells me something I don't know, but I, it's not like I didn't know, but she tells it just to me. And she says how much she loves the Lord. and that The Lord has been faithful to her every day of her life. 
And she told me about how when she was a young woman, her love of the Lord called her to become a missionary. When she was just a mere, I think she was 18 or 19 years of age, she left her family and her friends and everything she knew, and she boarded and took a ship to South Africa. She, she left during World War I. There were submarines in the water. She went because she felt faithful. She stayed. She stayed over 10 years. She met my great-grandfather, who was also an American missionary. They had two children, one of them being my grandmother. While they were there, living in the Vinda area of the South African region, she lived in this land and talked a different language and ate different foods and became one of the people because she loved the Lord and she was faithful to that call. And that example and that memory inspires me. Many of you have been in my office there in the corner and on the bookshelves I have a picture of her in her young days and She's sitting in the village with the children around her. And that picture, for me, is such a reminder. It's such an inspiration. It keeps me faithful in the day-in and day-out ministry of the work when I really just don't want to have that hard pastoral conversation. That picture's there. When I really don't want to fill out one more report for the church conference. That picture's there. When I really don't want to have to write a sermon when the death toll in Haiti continues to rise, that picture is there. Looking at me, a faithful example of what God calls us to do and what we can do because of that model. Now, you might not have a Lois or a Eunice or, in my case, a great-grandmother Lillian but you have examples in the faith. You have mothers and fathers and scout leaders and neighbors and friends, and you have the church around you. Lucas had the kids look out and see the faces here, but it's not just for kids. It's for all of us who look to others as leaders and matriarchs and patriarchs in the faith. These examples are abundant. And Paul speaks to 2 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, and God speaks to us today reminding us to look on them, reminding us to be thankful for them, reminding us to honor their memory and their faithfulness. But it's not just that. I love the way the letter says that these examples aren't just out there. That the letter also says those examples of faithfulness are in us, are in Timothy. I mean, it specifically says in, he talks about Timothy's sincere faith, the way that God is living within him, the way that Paul had laid hands upon him, and he sees that gift in him that is known for his um, faithfulness. It's there. It's in him. And I have to say, there's certain times in our lives, both I'm sure for Timothy and for us today, where we don't see it in ourselves. We don't feel faithful. We feel frustrated. We feel doubtful. We feel irritated, we feel sad, we feel sinful, we feel broken, we don't feel faithful, and it takes another, an outside voice saying, it's in you. It was entrusted to you, it was a treasure that was given to you, it was passed down, it was put inside you, it's in your DNA, is claimed, is beloved, is formed in the womb, that faithfulness is there, remember it. Years ago, I was doing a funeral for a young man, and as part of the funeral, his former teacher was asked to share a eulogy. And we were going out into the church. The church was packed. And I saw the teacher over to the side, and, and she didn't look very good. And I went over, and I, 
And I said, are you okay? I mean, she was pale and she was shaking. And she said, I can't do it. I can't, I can't go out there and I can't speak to these people who are grieving and hurting. I've got no words. I can't speak to them. I can't do it. And I looked at her and I said, you have taught school for more years than I have been alive. You have stood in classrooms on rainy days, on sunny days, on spring mornings, on winter days. You have stood, stood up there and talked to students who wanted to learn and didn't want to learn. You have inspired, you have motivated, you have comforted. It's in you. You know you can do it if you remember who you are, it's there. And she did. She gave one of the most beautiful, thoughtful, moving, appropriate eulogies I have ever heard. But she needed somebody to recognize that and claim who she really was. And that's what you see Paul doing for Timothy. That's what God is doing to us today. It's saying, you came here today. I mean, a lot of you didn't even have power this morning. And you came. Because you have that faithfulness in you. Own it. Celebrate it. Desire it. Hunger for it. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift that has been given. So the letter tells us that we should look to our models of faith. The letter tells us that we should remember that faith that is inside us. But the letter also goes in a really interesting direction, one that you get the sense that Timothy might not be altogether prepared for. And that is the letter tells Timothy, and by extension us, that a real faith, a true faith, has to kind of be a grown-up faith. A mature faith that understand that life and faith involve suffering. Now, the one thing we know about Timothy is that he's young. We know he's passionate. One might guess he's probably a bit naive, too. He was too young to know of the church gossip or the politics or the way that the world can turn and tragedies hit and sorrow comes abundant the doubts, the pain, all of it, he probably hadn't experienced that yet. And there might be that Paul would have liked to keep it that way, but he didn't have any more time left. The letter arrived, he had already been martyred. So in those moments of time that he had left, he had to instill in Timothy the knowledge that while things might sound rosy and great right now, you might be on fire for Jesus and everybody looks wonderful, it's not going to be that way all the time. And so when it gets hard... Understand your faith needs to be able to go there, too. We lose so many people, so many people who come up through children and youth, and they get into young adulthood, and they realize that life is harder and don't feel that the truisms the church has given them can hold up. And we are doing it credit to recognize that suffering plays a part, not just in church life, but in our faith life. And, and you can hear the words of Paul speaking to 2 Timothy through to, to Timothy and saying, it's going to be hard. Suffering is part of it. You don't have to bring it on yourself. The world would do that for you. But when it happens, you have to have the faith to know that God is big enough, the faith to know that God is still in charge, the faith to know that there's redemption and transformation and hope that's still possible, even when it's not in front of you. You might not even know it your entire life long. And you have to have that mature faith or it will crumble under the weight of the burden and the hurt and the pain. It reminds me of how in my church many years ago, there was this woman who I heard about. She had passed by the time I had arrived. But this woman who had, had just taught and inspired so many, she had never served in a leadership position in the church. 
But every single church leader and every single pastor for decades on end had spent hours and hours at her home seeking her wisdom, her spiritual insights, her prayers, her advice. And one day she found out that she had a very advanced and aggressive form of cancer, that she was going to die. And when the news spread, the entire church community was devastated. One man told me later that he went to her and, and he said to her, how can this happen to you, of you, of all people? How can you be facing this? And her response was, why not me? She had the kind of faith that inspired others. She had the kind of faith that enriched her life. She had the kind of faith that people wanted to model their lives after. And she also had the kind of faith that knew it wasn't a guarantee or a protection or prevented her from getting cancer or befalling any other ailment of life. That, that the faith that she had involved suffering and was open to it because she knew it would be redemptive, because she knew she would see her Lord. She knew she could inspire others in that place. And I think we need to look at those kind of stories today, particularly on this October morning when the headlines have been so severe, when the stories are so difficult to comprehend, when the loss is so big on a country like Haiti that has just barely recovered from an earthquake and now hundreds have lost their lives. We need to hear that the faithful go into the places of suffering, that the faithful accept suffering as part of the story, that the faithful are the ones who will help in Haiti and the Bahamas, the faithful are the ones that will be filling flood buckets and working in places of great flooding in North Carolina and Florida and everywhere else. We need to hear that we are faithful to the point that we know that our God is the God, not just of November 8th, but November 9th and November 10th and forevermore. That's the kind of faith that God is calling us to witness to today. That is the kind of faith that our mothers and our fathers have handed down to us. That is the kind of faith that is in us. It might even just be a mustard seed size. But scripture tells us that's enough because it's there and it'll get us through. And that is the kind of faith that will help us endure the suffering of the world today and the suffering of the world to come. Imagine that kind of faith, if you will. Glory to God. Amen.